We turn for our Old Testament reading to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Reading the Word of God as we prepare to meditate upon Matthew. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. We're continuing through Matthew. Be reading verses 1 through 8 in Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, The man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Let us pray. O Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for your word, which is sure and certain. At times, it challenges us to understand how we can live according to it and how we can understand this deep well of truth that is uh, too profound for us. We do so, O Lord, by your spirit, and we pray that you would open our minds and hearts now to the word of God. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been going through Matthew, picking up in chapter 8. Now we're in chapter 9, although here we're in the third of three short episodes that demonstrate the authority of Jesus. So this really belongs, I would say, at the end of chapter 8. So remember, chapter divisions are for convenience, not necessarily original. Well, they were not original to Matthew. So the first episode was when Jesus calmed the storm in chapter 8, 23 and following. And the second was the demoniacs um, in the previous passage. These demoniacs on the other side of the Jordan uh, uh, big pardon, the other side of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus had sailed with his disciples. Um, and it ended with probably one of the sadder uh, cases uh, of people's response to Jesus when the people who owned the pigs in the village came out in, in chapter 8, verse 34, 
And it said, Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Uh, How sad is that? Rather than rejoicing that these demoniacs, their own citizens, had been healed and freed from this bondage, and the fact that they lost some pigs, you can get more pigs, uh, but you can't get life from the dead like these two demoniacs had received. But they asked Jesus to leave because the pigs meant more to them than life. Very uh, tragic example because the next thing that happens is chapter 9, verse 1. So Jesus got in the boat and left. But, but this, is, this is where, you know, it's hard not to, not to think that Jesus is thinking in his heart, I'll be back. <laughs> I'll be back. Because Jesus is going to take over the world. He is coming to the world to be the savior of the whole world, even these kind of people who care more about pigs than eternal life, and he will, he will change some of them. So this is what's happening now. This is the background of where we're at. And there's something also in this passage that needs clarification. Um, the first thing is in verse, uh, this chapter 9, verse 2, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. This word for lying, you know, lying down, is not the normal word for lying down. Uh, instead, it, it's a word that, that really has the, the meaning of cast down, thrown down. And we saw this two times already. The centurion servant was thrown down in paralysis uh, earlier in chapter 8. And Peter's mother-in-law was thrown down with a fever. And he raised both of them up. This is the third occasion where he's going to raise somebody thrown down. The other place where you find Throwing down is the warning that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, not to count your life here as your most precious possession, but instead count eternal life in Christ most precious. You don't want to lose this life, you don't want to lose that life, and then here be cast into hell, thrown down into eternal death. So this man represents somebody thrown down in death, as it were. It's a picture of a man who's dead. He can't come in to see Jesus. Just like people in the cemetery can't come before God and appeal to the Savior. They're dead. They can't move. Likewise, this man. So Matthew is painting a picture here of a man who's helpless, and he's cast down and needs somebody to save him. But here's where you need to read Matthew as a unified story. And Matthew chapter 1 makes really clear who Jesus is. And this is a story that's easy to find in his day. You could go, you know, Jesus is not that far off. He's in Capernaum now, which is not that far away from where his family lives in Nazareth. He's up in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee. It's really not far away. You could find out 
more about Jesus by talking to his family. And his mother would tell you. And his father, assuming he is alive, could tell you. Yeah, an angel appeared to Joseph and said, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is Matthew 1.21. Matthew 1.21 says that. The, the angel declared, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And by the way, I didn't preach on that passage. If I were to, I would tell you that that's, that's really remarkable. Because the Old Testament has God saving people from enemies, but not from sin. You don't have that language of saving from sin in the Old Testament up till now. This is really the first time in the Bible you see that kind of language. Saving from sin. Uh, And that's who they name Jesus that because that's what he's going to do. That is his main mission. If you want to know why he came, he came to save his people from their sins. That's why he came. And they, they could know that. They wouldn't understand exactly how he's going to bring that about, but that's his mission. So in our text, we need to keep that in mind because this is, this is where Jesus is acting in such a way to demonstrate what he's doing, what he came into the world to do, to save his people from their sins. And we got a hint of that earlier when we're told that he came to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that he would take our afflictions on himself. So you have his mediation for us. Well, in our text, there's this paralytic being brought by friends, uh, which is quite remarkable, we'll get to. But also, this is the first time you have Jesus interacting with these scribes, and they show themselves in a negative light. So earlier we'd had a scribe who offered to follow Jesus, uh, but he wanted Jesus as a teacher. Uh, He wanted to limit Jesus' authority over him. You can teach me, and I'll follow you as a teacher, but beyond that, I don't promise any allegiance to you. And Jesus wants all of our allegiance, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the allegiance he commands of his disciples. So that's when he said, foxes have dens, son of man doesn't have a place to lay his head. So here are these scribes now come into this house. Uh, it's actually in the house, but you could read this as in his house. We're told that in Luke, that this was his house in Capernaum. But Jesus, you know, has a family residence there from his families, or it's a temporary abode that he had rented out. We're not, we're not really sure, but he's in his own city, chapter 9, verse 1, and he's in his home here when this, uh, men, these people bring this paralytic in. But here are these scribes in the home as well, so it's open to anybody. And these scribes, have in their heart which frank you know a thought which frankly is understandable in a sense jesus says my child your sins are forgiven and 
you're looking around going, wait a second, how can this man forgive sins? That's really a, that belongs to God, not to a man. And that's understandable, except that we've seen the scribes before in chapter one. In chapter one, they were told that their Messiah is going to be born uh, from the Magi coming. This Messiah is going to be born in Israel. This is the time for his miraculous birth. Um, and they didn't go to Bethlehem. They didn't look him up. They didn't bother to be uh, to to look for Jesus, the Savior of Israel, the one who would save his people from their sins. They didn't bother to pursue him. But now they see what he's up to, and now they're going to have to be confronted with the reality of Jesus and what he's doing. Now, scribes are not all bad in the Bible. Some of them actually refer to people uh, who are trained in the Bible, who uh, work at expositing the Bible. I don't say this selfishly. It's just the reality. Read, for example, Matthew 23, 34. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Jesus says this in Matthew 23, right after looking at the scribes and Pharisees and reproving them for their theology. And Jesus says, I will send you scribes along with prophets and wise men. So Jesus sends scribes to his people. This, is, this means somebody who's an expert in the scripture who can exposit it, who can bring out its teaching to help you understand the word of God. That's the main function of a scribe of the kingdom of God. And that's what these scribes are supposed to do. They're supposed to know the scripture and know about the Messiah and his ability and position, who he is, so that they see him acting and they're not to accuse him of blaspheming, but to take heart, take to their heart and ponder who it is they are dealing with. Okay, so Jesus arrives home. I mentioned he was originally from Nazareth, not too far from there. But Nazareth is a, a, a hill town, and it's, a, it's more of a village, and it's a little hard to get to. So now he's in Capernaum. This is where he now has his outpost. Capernaum is right by the lake. It's a lot easier to get to it, either by boat or by road system around the lake. So he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum to be a little more easy to get to essentially. So Jesus is uh, concerned that people could come and hear him and make it easier for them to uh, uh, have access to their Savior. So Jesus is in at his home. Now this episode, as we look at it, you're reading this and you're saying to yourself, isn't that the place where they broke open the roof and lowered the guy through the roof? And the answer is yes. But that's in Mark and Luke, <laughs> okay? Not in Matthew. So here's, here's how I do things, okay? Tell you for what it's worth. When I read Mark and Luke's version of it, I take note of the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
I don't try to smash it into a big harmony and create, you know, a new scripture, but rather it helps you to focus on what Matthew is doing because there are different possible perspectives of the same event. Events are complex. They have different meanings. It doesn't mean one's wrong and the other's right. It has different right meanings and interpretations. And the way Matthew is presenting it is it's actually easier for the people bringing the man. So what Matthew says is this. He doesn't talk about having to go to the roof and break it open to lower the man down. But it says this. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic. That's all it says. They brought to him a paralytic. And here's what I think you take from this. In Matthew, they didn't have to do something superhuman to bring this man to Jesus. And he still rewarded their faith. They didn't have to go, you know, cross country and do something amazing for Jesus to take notice of their faith. It was the faith of a mustard seed. It was all it needed. He doesn't necessarily demand of us things we can't do. That's what you take out of this. They brought this man to Jesus. That's what matters. That's what Matthew's saying. They brought the man to Jesus. Yes, the circumstances were pretty extraordinary. They had to lower him from the refine. But the really important point is they brought the man to Jesus. What's really valuable about your faith is not the size of your faith. It's who you're coming to. And the size of him and his power, that's what really matters, is Jesus. He matters. And our faith just brings us to him. And that's, why, that's what faith is. We look outside of ourselves and look to Jesus. And that's what's happening here in this passage. This is, this is a place where you see these people acting, and Jesus responds by, and here we, the end of verse 2, he saw their faith and says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) And and he hadn't done that before, right? People had come to him and he said, oh yeah, be healed, you know, I'll I'll cleanse you. The the, uh, man who had leprosy, skin disease, comes to him and says, if you are willing you can cleanse me. Jesus says, I'm willing to be cleansed. It's all rather cut and dry, you know, the healing stuff. But now Jesus ramps it up. He raises it a level. And he says, oh yeah, I could make this paralytic walk. That's easy. Now I'm going to do the hard part. My son, your sins are forgiven. Because both are easy enough for him. My son, your sins are forgiven. Because he's getting at the heart of what he's doing in the world. He came to bring the forgiveness of sins for his people. That's the work he has. He didn't come as a faith healer. That would be fine, but then people would still die. He came that we might live forever with our sins forgiven. That's the hard part. That's what he came to do. He came to ascend the cross and to pay for sins. 
He alone can do that. He, of all the people who've ever lived, can do that. The Son of God incarnate. He alone can do that. And he demonstrates it here. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if he were blaspheming, if he didn't have that right, if he were offending God, this man would stay in his pallet. This man would not get up and walk. This man would not be healed. Because the power comes from God. Jesus employs the power of the Holy Spirit from his Father as a sign of who he is and what he came to do and God's approval of him. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. I'm still well pleased in him. He forgives sins. I'm well pleased in him. He's doing the right thing. He's only doing what's good and right. That's what he came to do to save his people from their sins. When he declares your sins are forgiven, that's the right thing to do. And I, I authorize that. How do you know? What's easier? Your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Well, in one sense, you could say it. <laughs> I could say it. Anybody could say it. It's easy to say. Not very many words. Let's just say it. <laughs> Another thing to do it. How do you know his sins are actually forgiven? You don't see forgiveness of sins, do you? How do you know his sins are forgiven? It's not something visible. He got up and walked. That's how you know. You know because it had this effect. This is why I made a big deal out of him being thrown down in paralysis. Because this word for rise and walk, the word for rise here is the same word used for resurrection. You're getting an echo of the fact that this man is, is being given a foretaste of the resurrection. No, he's not resurrected yet. But he's a sign of it. Because that's what's going to happen on the last day for those whose sins are forgiven. Rise from the dead to eternal life with our sins thrown away from us as far as the east is from the west. And rise in glory never to die again. Imperishable bodies. Incorruptible existence. That's what awaits the people of God. And Jesus is bringing that in. This is what he's demonstrating See, this is, this is why healing people is good, but it's only a sign. It's a pointer to the forgiveness of sins that he's bringing in. That's why he says that. He wants us to ponder, what is easier here? I could say, I could be a faith healer. You know, yeah, that's, I could do that. But that's not, not why I came. That would be te a temporary fix. That's a Band-Aid. I came to get to the root of the problem, came to eradicate death, and death is the reward of sin. So, brothers and sisters, this is the man who, who offers to us the blood of the covenant, the blood by which we are purified from all of our sins. We're going to have the sacrament of that soon. We're brought down, we're brought here to the chief reason why he came. And notice how Jesus puts it. Verse 6, but that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is why he came into the world. The Son of Man came in with authority to forgive sins because he's going to pay for the sins of his people. This, brothers and sisters, is the demonstration that Jesus is from God and he has the authority to forgive sins. That you may know this, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home, and he did. Notice how perfunctory that is. Notice how quickly that happens. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home, seven, and he rose and went home. It just happens. There's no drama here other than, wait, 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 just, that's it? Yeah, that's it. No angels blowing trumpets, People are not, you know, <laughs> glowing in the dark. or there's, there's just nothing other than, oh, yeah. And, they, and you're going, wait, what just happened? That's their response. This is the normal response of people in the face of something supernatural. Verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. But their first response is fear. They're in the presence of something that has never happened before. How many sins did Moses forgive? How many times did Isaiah go into a room and say, your sins are forgiven? None of the prophets ever said that. Daniel, he didn't say that. No one says this who is right before God. And Jesus just said it and did it and demonstrated that it's true. This man's sins are forgiven. They were afraid. They can't process this. Who is this? What, what's happening here? What is going on? And they glorify God. Right thing to do. <laughs> Always the right thing to do. But it wasn't the kind of glory that they fully understood yet. I think that comes out in this very last phrase, who had given such authority to men. Interesting, right? Jesus is just, yeah, one of the many men that God has given this authority to. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's pretty unique. So now I want to tell you about something. And we're, I'm wrapping this up. In our worship service, you may notice that uh, we have what's called the assurance of pardon. It's also called a declaration of pardon, uh, an announcement of pardon. And you'll notice that when I give the pardon, when I do that, I announce it. It's a proclamation of pardon. I am not praying that God would pardon you, and I am not pardoning you. So in our worship service, it's a kind of a formal, actual thing where I declare to you on the authority of the word of God, your sins are forgiven if you have confessed your sins. But you should take that as the word of Christ because it originates with him. That is an act of my office and calling. I have been authorized by Christ to make that announcement to you. He has called me to do that. 
It is part of being a minister of the gospel. We have what's called ministerial authority. The authority doesn't originate from me, my person, my personality, nothing about me. It originates from Christ's calling and office that he gave me, of all people. Now, if you want to see this, there are a lot of places where I could show you this, but I'd ask you to turn now to Acts chapter 10. Uh, 42 and 43. This is Peter when he has brought the gospel to Cornelius, the kind of the first fruits of the Gentiles here, when the gospel is starting to go out from Israel to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And Peter said, we were witnesses. God, Christ didn't appear to everybody but to us because, verse 41, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. See, notice the choice of God, that he has been set apart by God for this task. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter had just done what I do every Lord's Day. He, that's, that's it right there. By the authority of the word of God, he has called me to announce and to preach to you that you who trust in his name are forgiven. And that's what's happening. It's a declaration of the word of God to you. And you can take that as a word from the Lord. If you confess your sins, if you trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, your conscience should be clean based on the word of God if you confess your sins. I'm not doing anything magical, not doing anything powerful in itself. It's the word of God that has an effect on your life. And it's glorious. And that's why we do it. It's, it's something that you need week by week. You need that assurance of God's love and forgiveness because we... We go out tomorrow and we continue to sin. We still struggle with sin. God has made provision for you. Now there's a second thing in our passage I'd like to point out briefly. Notice that Jesus said, or the, the word says, so going back to Matthew eight, uh, 9, when Jesus saw their faith. Mark says that and Luke says that too. All three agree. When Jesus saw their faith. Brothers and sisters, you are vital. Your faith and your help to your brothers and sisters in the Lord is vital for their health and forgiveness. For their life in the church. You are in a community of believers And the Lord Jesus looks on your faith when you help somebody. This is why we read that law of God opening, encouraging one another to love and good works in the church. This is an act of faith. It is your role in the world to do two things. You are witnesses to the world in whatever capacity you have, and you are aids 
to your brothers and sisters in the Lord in the congregation. If you're a member of this church, this is what you commit to do, to help one another in the faith, just like those people carrying that litter. And the Lord sees your faith, and he rewards it by acting on your faith to help somebody. This is your privilege to help one another in the Lord. This is a great thing. So we evangelize. We, we speak the word of God to our neighbors. And we bring them to Christ. Now, some of you are thinking, that's really complicated. I'm not sure I can do that. Well, here's what you can do. Take some cookies to your neighbor and say, we're having a potluck at our church. Why don't you come to church and enjoy the potluck with us so you get to meet some of my dear friends. Somebody's lonely. Well, we have a pretty good community in our church. Why don't you come along to our worship? It starts at 11, and you're, you'll be more than welcome to be part of our church. And believe me, I will preach the gospel to them every Lord's Day. That's what we do because we proclaim the word of God to people. You will hear the gospel every Lord's Day in this church. And those people will be brought in the presence of the Lord. It's easy in that light, isn't it? But here's the other thing. Prayer. Let's say you can't visit somebody. You, can't, you don't drive that well. Or they live pretty far away. You can pray for them. Call them on the phone. You can encourage them in the Lord. There's lots of things you can do. Set your mind to it. Our prayer meeting meets every Wednesday evening. I encourage you to come. You don't have to come every time, but you come and see how the Lord has answered our prayers for the life of this church. That's vital. It's our lifeline to the Lord. Our prayers together, our appeal to God, our earnest petitions to our Savior. We've seen time and again the Lord answering our prayers. You come and be a part of that. You're upholding somebody. You come in faith to do that. Maybe you live too far away and you just can't come. Fine. I'm not pressuring you. You can pray in your daily life for your brothers and sisters who have need and inquire. These are the kinds of things that demonstrate that this Word of God has you know, impressed you. Jesus saw their faith. And He said, Child, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith. You have a blessed role in the life of other people. Take advantage of that in faith. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Lord, we thank you for this word of God and its beauty and all of the uh, wonder of our Savior here. In a sense, it's too much for us, O oh Lord. We don't know how to process it all the time as well and what we should do in response. Make it clear to us, O oh Lord, that we may glorify you with our lives, with our prayers, with our uh, efforts to reach out with the gospel to our neighbors. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.